Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Mexican-American relationship has been much in the news recently, mostly via discussion of illegal aliens, of the building of vast and expensive walls, of instant deportations, of dreamers being abruptly woken up. But what stories are not being told, either enough or at all? In 2014, an unprecedented rise in the number of unaccompanied and undocumented Mexican and Central American children arriving at the US border resulted in draconian new policies. This in turn drove the Mexican-born New York-based writer Valeria Luiselli, herself an alien at the time, anxiously awaiting an elusive green card, to take on the role of interpreter and translator, helping to steer the children through the immigration courts. Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 Questions, is the result, a meditation structured around the 40 questions asked to the children by lawyers building their case. And the answers spell the difference between being allowed to stay, and if so, on what terms, or being turned away. Luiselli came into the studio to discuss the ongoing crisis, America's role in it, and where she positions herself as a writer. If you've heard this interview before on Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, you can skip along 20 minutes and you'll pick up with the rest of the podcast. I first heard about the crisis in 2014 and I wrote this book about a year later. I wrote it as, as, as a result of one year, basically, or a bit more than one year working in court as a, an interpreter, translator, screener for children. There was a huge need at that time for people who could translate between English and Spanish, Spanish and English, because as you may know, in the US, everyone speaks Spanish except lawyers and maybe editors. So they're, they're two very monolingual worlds. And so I was among the, the many, many volunteers that arrived in, in, those, in those months to, to listen to kids' stories and translate them into English and write them down in order to have something to start with and hopefully find a pro bono lawyer for that child. How did you, I mean, you have a very specific role in all of this. How did you understand your role as a, a translator and an interpreter, the two things not, not being the same thing? How, how did you find, what did you find that you were doing? What was your role? And perhaps you could talk a bit about the importance of language because you, you set it very much, the problem, as being one about reframing things with the language that you use. I mean, court interpreting is, is, is an art on its own, and I had no previous formal training as a court interpreter or as a simultaneous interpreter. It, it, it really is a very difficult thing to do. And I did have some, some basic 
training in translation, but it's it's not also not not my area. You know? So I had I had to learn quickly and and a lot. Um, but I think what was clear from the beginning is that there was an overlap of several forms of translation. So there was first of all the very literal uh, sense of carrying over what children said in Spanish into English. But then there was also a kind of translation from an adult language, uh, a bureaucratic language, to the language that a child might understand. So, so often some of the questions in the questionnaire are incomprehensible for a child, such as, uh, did anyone in your former country uh, need and have access to mental health insurance. There's no way to, to have a conversation. And the point of an interview, with it, an intake interview with a child in court is to, to really get as much information from a child so that a case can be built. And with that case, a pro bono lawyer found. So it, it, make, it makes no sense to try to follow this very sort of bureaucratic, uh, brutal language. Uh, so there's an interp there's a level of interpreting there, interpreting and translating and re rephrasing, um, and then there's there's other very just fine layers, complex threads that have to do with sort of cultural translation, if I may say it like that. For example, I'm a Chilanga, which means I'm from Mexico City. A lot of the kids that I interview are catrachos, which means they're from Honduras, and Hondurans are not very fond of Mexicans and for a good reason you know, because Mexico is a is a country that has always treated Hondurans with, with with great cruelty and much more so in recent immigration waves uh, a lot of people get killed uh, disappeared so there is there's a kind of difficult negotiation in 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 our in the, t in the terms that I use when I interviewed a child from Honduras, and I remember the one of the one of the first kids I interviewed, and he's someone I talk about in the book. He said, "What are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm not a gringa." And he said, "So what are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm a chilanga." And he said, "Well, I'm a catracho, which means we're enemies." And I said, "Well, yeah, but we're only enemies in football, and and <laughs> I suck at it. So you've already scored five goals against me. So let's get on with this, right?" And he kind of smiled and. He almost laughed, and he, and he, 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 I didn't gain his trust, but maybe I, I, I did at least uh, get his attention. Mm. And he was a teenager, so it was a d more difficult kind of interaction. So at, uh, the whole time, I had to negotiate with, with these very invisible threads um, that bind us and also separate us, right? This is Manuel you're talking about, I think. Yes. He, you, you describe his story as obsessing you through the book, and. I guess that's because he, perhaps more than any of the others, really brings home the extent to which the US is implicated in all of this, how symbiotic the relationship is there. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about, about that, his particular story. Yes, exactly. That's a really good way of putting it. So so Manu, whose who story I tell in great detail in the book and, and who is a person that I'm, st that I'm still in contact with, with him and his whole family and partly for bad reasons, uh, basically because his case is ongoing. And although he now has some form of Im immigration relief, he doesn't have a green card. And it's not clear if he will ever. But um, he, he arrived in 2014, and I interviewed him in court in his first notice to appear. 
in the early months of 2015. So I was his first kind of court screener, right? And he was my f my first case. He had he had been basically persecuted by gangs in his home country in in Honduras. He refused to to join a gang despite the the great pressure that was put on him. He actually went to the police at some point and um filed a report and nothing was done. And one day he, he, he was just getting out of school with his best friend and he noticed that boys from that gang, not only boys, but sort of older, older men too from that gang, were waiting for him outside the school and that there were many, so that he, there, were, there was no, ch no, no chance in fighting them. So he left walking, pretending not to notice, not to see, just not, not acknowledging their presence. And they started walking after him and his friend. At some point, um, they took out guns. So they, so so Manu and his friend started running, and uh, the gang members shot Manu's best friend right there in front of him as as they tried to run away. You know, shot him in the back, and Manu kept on running. He kept on running, and he eventually made it home and safe. And he called that night. He called an aunt that he has in Long Island who had migrated years earlier and told her the story and she said don't worry I understand this is that your life is at risk I'm gonna get you over here whatever that costs me and she did she paid a coyote to get him over to the US coyote being a people smuggler basically someone who who crosses children or adults across um, national borders so coyote took Manu over to the US and he t Manu turned himself in at the border. The coyote d didn't didn't cross the, the the deserts with him. He just deposited Manu at the U.S. border. And Manu, as most kids, turned looked looked for for border patrol to turn himself in as soon as possible. Often, kids, by the way, would tell me in court that they that the worst the worst would be not to find a policeman, like to get to the desert and then just be in the middle of the desert with no one there, so deposited by a coyote and no policeman in sight. So, peop so, so, so so children usually in groups or sometimes alone walk, just walk through the most transited way, um, highways and roads, just waiting for a, a, a policeman and border patrol to appear. Mm, because in effect, in, until you exist in the system, you don't exist at all. Right, right. I mean, not only is crossing the desert if you're a child on your own practically in, um, impossible, but if you do cross it and actually survive and manage to get to the first town and arrive to a point where there's water and food, you'll be a ghost, basically, because no one caught you and so you're not in the system and then your destiny is to, to remain undocumented for the rest of your life. And that's not what, what these children want. And that's not what uh, international law uh, dictates, by the way. No? These, all, these children, because of the situation they're fleeing, like Manu, fleeing a systematic persecution, not of a government, but of a kind of para-state, which is what gangs have become, mm -hmm. right? They own, they have a justice system, they traffic arms, they traffic drugs, they have, uh, they almost have their own currency, I mean, they don't, but they, they are like a parallel economy and a parallel uh, government. So international laws that protect refugees, if someone is persecuted by a group, a political group, or a government uh, for certain kind of reasons. There's four or five very clear categories of what, what makes you eligible for, for asylum. But if you're running, if you're being persecuted 
for any one of those reasons, uh, you are eligible for, for asylum. So these kids are, by international standards. They just need to find a lawyer to make their case. So when Manu arrived finally in the U.S., safe, he received this notice to appear, I interviewed him in court. And while I was interviewing him, he took out a piece of paper that was this report, this, this uh, report that he'd filed in the police denouncing the fact that, that there was this group of, of, of men, young, young men, boys, and older men from a gang that had constantly harassing him. And when I saw that, uh, although I'm not a lawyer, I thought, well, maybe, you know, this, this, is, this looks like some kind of evidence, so let's, let's ask. And I called over the lawyer that had given me the basic training to start interviewing the kids, and she, and she said, that's it. You don't have to even continue with interview. This gives us a really solid case. And so Manu luckily received, immediately he got really great pro bono lawyers, basically like huge firm that does some pro, pro bono work who took on his case because it was a, a kind of easy case, you know, and mm. a case that, that would be won. And they did win the case in some ways. They, he, he has a type of protection right now called the SIG visa. It's a special juvenile, I- immigrant juvenile status. But what happened beyond the court is that when Manu started going to school, he started being bullied by gangs in his school in Long Island. Ones that he recognized, ones, ones that effectively connected right back to where he'd come from. Exactly. Um, there was the MS-13, which uh, had been present in Honduras and he'd been fleeing, and there was Barrio 18, another gang that he'd been fleeing. So he did not know, but it turned out that in Hempstead, Long Island, there were exactly the same gangs that he was trying to flee from in Honduras. So this realization, a lot of kids don't know when they arrive to the U.S. that maybe they're trapped in a kind of nightmare that they cannot wake up from, mm. right? Because the gangs are not, they're, they're not a couple of drug dealers standing in a corner. They're, they're really like, they're <laughs> I was talking about kind of parastates, but they're, all, they're like transnational parastates. Mm. They have an immense power. I mean, no one really knows, but the MS-13 has maybe more than 60,000 members. And these, you know, these are people with guns, people with, with a kind of fearless, uh, and, and, and no res- fearless attitude to life, but, but also no respect for life, right? Mm. So that's what, that's what the U.S. often does not acknowledge. And how much do you think that there's been a growing awareness, or in fact the opposite in, in terms of the general public? I know, of course, that your your book is being um, has been billed as you know the first book to read for the Trump era, but it, you know it predates that um, because, in fact, when you start writing, it's it's about policies that came into effect during the Obama administration. So, where are we now? What what's the climate? What what's changed since President Trump came into power? I mean, everything is worse, but of course, all these policies started long before Trump existed. I mean, everyone has been somehow complicit, and the Democrats have 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 not been better, at least for immigrant lives. Right? Mm-hmm. There's maybe more education on the matter now because more people are writing about it in spaces that are are more visible, perhaps. So it's, there's more awareness that that this particular immigration crisis is is not really an immigration crisis, but a, but a refugee crisis. 
and that the 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 United States is implicated in it historically. Uh, I go into into why that is in the book, I, and reasons, exact reasons of of the of its implication, and also in the shared responsibility of of the governments of the USA, Mexico, and the Northern Triangle. And I argue in the book that until all our governments acknowledge their shared responsibility, there, there, there will be no solution either for transnational gangs or their victims, which, which are children most of the time, children and minors. Uh, the, the Trump situation is not going to make any of this better because... I mean, the way that they, that he and the White House manipulate information is, I mean, I don't even have to go into that. But, for example, Trump was in Long Island uh, a few months ago, and he spoke about, he spoke of the gangs there, the MS-13 and so on, in, in complete false terms. He said what he usually said. These gangs are pouring into the U.S. from the, from the U.S.-Mexico uh, border and that's why we need a wall and we have to stop these gangs from coming in. Those gangs were born in LA, not in Central America. They're not a local problem that 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 is being exported or imported into the U.S. The the MS-13 was an L- LA mm. LA gang as well as Barrio 18. Many people don't know that and it's and and it's easy to manipulate and hide that fact. Yeah, and, and it's such a central part of the story yeah. that you can't ignore that detail. I mean, I suppose it's interesting in, in that respect as well that um, I saw that refugee admission has now been capped at an all-time low. Absolutely, that's what happened now. I mean, I was talking about Manu's particular case earlier, uh, the fact that the last time I spoke to his lawyers, which was not even a week ago, to ask them what the updates were for his renewal of his current immigration status and for his green card which he applied for uh, more than a year ago and the answer was the green card is there's a big backlog and they won't come uh, until further notice because the answer was there there are no more green cards for for Central American children that are trying to to get an adjustment of status from a refugee status to a, to a resident status just there's simply no more the latest update from the white house nightmare is that the government wants to among other things deport children as soon as they arrive at the mexico us border um, regardless of their nationality and not allow, not 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 give them due process. Not allow them to go through through legal proceedings, as is, by the way, what is constitutional and and what and what international and national law dictates. So I mean, I don't I don't think this will happen, be, and or not immediately because it it, it would be illegal. But the law has been changed before. That law used to include children from all over the world, and Bush changed it in two thousand and seven to exclude from it children from Mexico and Canada, really de facto. Countries that share borders exactly. with, with the US. Exactly. So de Uris, uh Mexico and Canada, but de facto only Mexico. So, so it's been done before, and they can find a way, and they will certainly find a way to try to exclude um, children from Central America. But it, 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 won't, it won't be an immediate, it won't be immediate, because it's, I think, I mean, a lot of uh, lawyers working that have been working on this for a long time 
I think, I hope, we'll find ways to, to protect as many children, that, especially the ones that are already there and are in, a, in an immigration limbo, right? Like Manu, yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Let's talk about this book in the in the kind of the broader context of your of your work because this is this is the first book of essays. I mean, it's a it's a book length essay, um, but it's the first essay based book um, since Papeles Falsos, which was in two thousand and eleven. Was that, I think that was translated as Sidewalks in in Correct. the UK. Um, there's a shift in tone from that. Obviously, that first work was more meandering, whereas this one is urgent. It's a very different beast. You say at one point. In Tell Me How It Ends, you say, I knew that if I did not write this particular story, it would not have made sense to return to writing anything else. And that comes in a section called Community. I'm wondering, do do you feel yourself becoming increasingly committed, involved um, as a writer? I feel myself increasingly involved as a member of a community. And I I don't think that it is a writer's duty to anything. I think it is a writer's duty to write well. But as a, as, a, as a person, as a human being, as a member of a community, I, f- I feel uh, entirely responsible for playing my part. And I think that we are living in times that demand of all of us a different kind of social participation. We, we're simply not living in the same times that we were a few, even a few months ago. Something changed in the world and it's urgent uh, that we are present and awake and alive and channeling our energies to things uh, where we can um, we can I mean not 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 we not that our participation will produce deep and lasting changes but we have to keep keep it together as much as possible and if we have or that's how I think of it at least if we have privileged space spaces such as uh, newspaper columns or radio shows or or books that we publish or whatever else then 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 great let's I mean let's use those spaces to to revise the the language that is being used around immigration for example to denounce 
atrocities, to, to keep pressuring, to keep watching. I mean, I think that one of the reasons, for example, that it got so out of hand uh, in 2015 and the Obama administration was able to do such horrible things, such as the creation of the priority docket, uh, was that there wasn't really an international vigilance on all of this. This this issue didn't really get coverage outside the U.S. and it got it didn't get enough coverage in the U.S. either. Very people, very few people. I mean, I think probably the Guardian did something, but it was very like everything that that was published abroad was very very scarce, and that I think does make a difference when the international community is there and is watching. Um, atrocities, at least, do not go by immune. Right? Yeah. I've said there's there's a bit um you've said elsewhere that you feel particularly foreign in Mexico. Um and it's the it's the one place where I don't feel I should be foreign, you say. Which brings to mind an expression that you use a couple of times and tell me how it ends, where you talk about the US, um the US's great theatre of belonging. I'm wondering what you mean what you mean by that. Well, there's a there's a narrative, right, in the US. There's a narrative about uh arriving and staying and belonging to to that great American dream, so to speak. There's, it's there's a narrative that that doesn't exist in other places. That is not part of the foundational myth of other places, as as it is in the U.S. Right. So, people go. People often will prefer to live in in poverty or uh, live in a situation of constant. Uh, targeting or being targeted racially or for their religion uh, just to remain in the United States, right? Because that is the, that is the dream. That is what, what people set out to accomplish as if living in a place were an accomplishment. In a way, it is. I mean, it is an accomplishment to survive to the brutality of, of, of American cities and the, the amount of work that people have to get done in order to just pay their rent. There is an accomplishment in that, of course. But um, but I I wonder and I I wonder about it in the book uh, how much will everyone have to endure before before it becomes unbearable? And I I speak to a lot of Mexicans, a lot of Mexicans who are undocumented, and a lot of them say that they're thinking of of returning to Mexico because because it, this is simply just not not bearable anymore. Um, I think that when I wrote those lines. We didn't know how unbearable it was going to get so quickly for so many people, especially people that are undocumented, because they they are living under uh, a, f- a I mean a fascist kind of threat. People people cannot sleep at night without knowing. <laughs> people cannot sleep at night properly because there is this threat of, of ICE agents who who now are just sort of raiding. Uh, they just r- arrive at people's houses in the middle of the night and knock on the doors and, and take people away. People that haven't committed crimes, people that, just people that they have on their list and, 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 and decide to disappear, deport back, put into centers, detention center, put into jail. So, so there is now this, this brutality that didn't exist in the Obama era, although there, was, there were a lot of deportations. There, there wasn't this feeling that 
people uh, that ICE agents could just come in and take you away. Mm. So it has become unbearable for many people. And the, well, the personal element for you as well is, is of course, crucial. You were you were born in Mexico. You you live in the U.S. And there's an anecdote that you tell in um in the book. It's a sort of coda to to this book, um, where you talk about your daughter mm. in the in the in the 2016 presidential campaign, and she's painting her face. Mm. If you could tell us that, just tell us that story, because yeah. that that really. Yeah, I can tell you a bit about that. I mean, I think our situation, I wouldn't say it's great, because just being being Mexican in the U.S. right now, it feels like a, a, like a daily humiliation. But of course, I mean, we're in, a, we're in a situation that's much more comfortable because we have green cards. Not that green cards are, are a very uh, strong document right now. No? We, we heard during the Muslim bans of so many, so many people coming from the countries included in the ban, but with green cards that were being <laughs> just held illegally, basically, because there was no reason to hold them. Um, so everything has become fragile. But before it became fragile, I think that a lot of us sense that it would or that it could. And m- my daughter, in the period in which Trump was still running, was still the p- during the primaries, if I remember correctly, when it was still wasn't clear whether it would be Hillary or him to run up for pre- to run for president, although everyone thought it would be, of course, Hillary. And so she jokingly and not in her seven-year-old mind. I don't know really what w- goes on there. But one day she she was playing with face paint, and she was painting her face yellow and then blue and then green and then polka dots. And at one point she started painting herself uh, with only white paint, and she said, uh, "Look, Mama." Um, look, Mama, I'm I'm painting my 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 face like this so so that when Trump comes, you know, um, didn't even finish the sentence, but it was didn't need to <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's, I mean, among kids my daughter's age, I've heard the things that I think are the most heartbreaking. Now it's not the adults around me that I hear that. I mean, we're I don't know we were maybe prepared in a way or maybe we're less prepared and I think what's brutal is to see children being so prepared somehow so I, I, even if they're just playing right I mean that's well, there was one occasion of my daughter there was another occasion which at the dinner table my daughter said to us well maybe we should just not speak Spanish outside you know so that they don't know we're Mexican or she'll be speaking to a friend she has a, one friend called Ella uh, who is half Argentinian, half American? She's African American. And Ella told my Ella's a little bit, a little bit uh, younger, you know. So um, she told my, you know, you're gonna have to leave America because because you're Mexican, and uh, and then we're gonna leave too because we're black. <laughs> so if not, they're gonna kill you, and then they're gonna kill us. With this like matter of factness, mm. like not even fear. There wasn't like self pity or fear and. And all of that, and I, and I, and, and I, and I hear children, and I wonder. I wonder if, if, if we should hear them like, like oracles. If, if we're really gonna get all the way there, and it's even if we don't, it's brutal to see kids so kind of mentally prepared for the worst. And do you feel, given the urgency, the specific urgencies of the time, do you feel yourself? drawn more to to fiction or to to non-fiction or do you hold them both in equal regard i hold them both in equal regard i, I don't really make the distinction the only distinction i'd make is between good books and bad books I, yeah 
Yeah. I suppose thinking about the story of my teeth, your your novel, your previous novel, even that, I mean, it, it it's a work of fiction, but it was very much grounded in fact, um, the, the process of, of gathering real people's stories. And really, I suppose what comes to the fore in both your, your fiction and non-fiction, if yeah. we'll keep that distinction for a second, is just the work of collaboration, interpretation um, in, in the making of stories. Yeah, definitely. Probably in its in its procedure, uh, the story of my teeth was more like uh, like writing nonfiction, right? Mm. As you as you have very eloquently put it, I I just finished a long long novel that I started in two fourteen during the trip that I talk about in the book, and it's a, it's a novel that does talk about immigration, but that does so from a kind of more slanted a- angle, right? Um, actually, I, I was I was writing I was writing the book when I started working in court and somehow I started using that book, that the novel, I mean, as a kind of vessel um, in which to pour in all my my sense of rage and desperation and anger. And, um, and of course what happened is that uh, the novel became a little bit pamphletary, not great. It just, it was start starting to kind of fall apart, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that. I mean, fiction needs always needs a kind of nuance. It, f- rage is okay for fiction, but 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 trying to 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 turn a, a novel into a political instrument is a very bad idea. It becomes kind of like a preaching device, and and so I had to I had to stop. I had to stop, and I wrote this piece where I was able to articulate all of this. In a, in a much more direct way, which was the way I, the way this had to be told, really. Uh, it's more of a, uh, a, of a way of denouncing uh, a situation than anything. And, and, and once I did finish this essay, Tell Me How It Ends, I was able to return to the novel and think about migration, but in a much, in a much wider context, and mm. maybe thre- thread more nuance into it, uh, which is what I, I tried to look for in fiction, so I, I try to write fiction that's like that too, right? Thank you very much. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. It's, been, you, a, it's yeah. been a pleasure speaking to Huge you. Huge pleasure. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.